0: Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I talk to Kristin Godsey, professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania and author of many books, including Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. It was such a pleasure to have Kristen on the show to help me deconstruct liberal, corporate and NGO feminism and think about how feminism is supporting all of us to build stronger, happier, healthier relationships and rediscover our unalienated humanity in the process. Thank you so much to all our amazing patrons who make this show possible. If you want to access the full hour long episode of this show, as well as full length interviews with previous amazing guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornel West, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link to follow in the description. If you'd like to support the show in another way, please do give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. A big thank you to Reverend and the Makers, who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Kristin Godsey on the socialist roots of International Women's Day. So, Kristen, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How is your International Women's Day going?
1: It has been pretty wonderful so far. I've got my red roses uh, set up in my office. And, you know, I'd love to be out on the streets with my fist raised somewhere. But for now, you know, I'm just hanging out and having the opportunity to talk to you on this really important day, I think is uh, good enough for me. Yeah, I think we would all
0: like to be out on the street somewhere with our fists up in the air. But sadly, we may have to wait a few more months before the post-pandemic wave of protest can commence. But I'm sure it will happen.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly.
0: Right. Let's get into it then. I want you, if you can, to just talk to us a little bit about the socialist roots of International Women's Day.
1: Yeah, sure. No problem. So, you know, a lot of people, especially I think today in the United States, International Women's Day is increasingly being co-opted by corporations who are trying to sell us things, you know, as is often the case. But International Women's Day really got established officially in 1910 at the Second International Congress of Socialist Women, which was being held in Copenhagen. Claire Zetkin, who was a very prominent German socialist, was responsible in many ways for putting it forward. And Alexandra Kolontai, who was a Russian at the time, she was a Menshevik, she was also there and was a very keen supporter of this um, holiday. So the First International Women's Day was actually celebrated in 1911, making today the 110th anniversary of this um, very important women working women's holiday. Initially, it was called Working Women's Day. And it was established on March 8th to commemorate a strike that was actually in New York, held in New York by some needle workers. And the official day of March 8th was declared in 1913. And then in 1917, on International Women's Day, it was a women's day march actually that sort of precipitated the february revolution in in russia tsarist russia at the time a lot of people don't realize this because under the old julian calendar which is what they used in tsarist russia at the time it was the date was february 23rd which is why we call it the february revolution But in fact, by the Gregorian calendar, which is the calendar we use in the West, it was March 8th. And so the uprising started because women were basically going out into the streets and advocating for peace and for bread. They were obviously opposed to the First World War. And this basically led to massive protests in in Petrograd, which eventually led to the abdication of the Tsar four days later, and then eventually, obviously, to the Bolshevik Revolution in October of that year. And so in the Soviet Union, it became a holiday. It was celebrated initially, again, as Working Women's Day, and then later it was called International Women's Day. And it was made an official like holiday, like a bank holiday in 1965 in the Soviet Union. And then in 1975, the United Nations declared the International Year of Women. And during the International Year of Women, the United Nations made it an official global holiday recognized by the UN uh, March 8th as International Women's Day. And it has been celebrated all around the world. I think in about 12 or 13 countries, it's an official holiday. It's an unofficial holiday in many more places, but it has always been a holiday about women's struggles as part of broader struggles for social and economic equality. And so it's very odd that it has, you know, sort of become recently a weird girl power holiday when that was never what it was intended to be.
0: Yeah. So you've really anticipated my next question there, which is that given the heritage of this, you know, very socialist um, celebration, um, how has the day become so commercialized and kind of NGOized?
1: yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting and fascinating phenomenon. I've been if you've looked at the Google Doodle for today or you know Reese Witherspoon tweeted out something about International Women's Day today and like the Barbie account clapped back at it. <laughs> um, I'm not kidding. Um, and you know, tonight in the United States, Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton are doing a big democratic fundraiser for International Women's Day. And so it's it's really lost, It's radical past and it's like that... women
0: can bomb Syria too right exactly
1: yeah <laughs> and i you know i really i find it so fascinating because after the the berlin wall fell in 1989 representative Maxine Waters a democrat from california actually tried to make it a holiday in the united states in 1993 or 4 and it, the bill never even made it out of committee because the holiday was so profoundly associated with the socialist countries and you know it's worth saying that some of the socialist countries it was in some of those countries it was a very beloved holiday in Bulgaria where I do most of my research it was established as a holiday in 1915 and it was a very well loved holiday in other places not so much in the Soviet Union especially after it became an official bank holiday in 1965 a lot of men just used it as an excuse to get drunk <laughs> so <laughs> it was uh, sort of frowned upon but but the reason i think that it has become so commercialized And NGOized, as you said, is because there's been a move away from a kind of women's activism that is directed towards getting resources redistributed through the state Mm. and much more about a kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality of women just going out there and slaying the boardroom or whatever. (laughs) And that message of individual autonomy and empowerment and self-actualization is actually quite compatible with capitalism. And so once you shift the meaning of International Women's Day away from structural challenges to capitalism or structural challenges to patriarchy, and you just focus on the individual, it's very compatible with the kind of you know market solution, sort of commercialized, NGOized holiday it's just been kind of defamed.
0: yeah i mean it feels like modern feminism in in many parts of the rich world at, at least white feminism has become synonymous with liberalism so it's like you know the challenges that women face face are all about kind of individual prejudices and all we need is a bit of diversity and inclusion training we need to make more women ceos and then you know everything will be fixed and there's this kind of trend where like misogyny and, and patriarchy these structural issues are boiled down to this question of individual sexism which is like people that it's like something that bad people do right right and it, i'm just wondering what you think this change i suppose has done in terms of understanding how people kind of think about the fight for uh, for, um, gender equality?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's really important to address this idea that sexism is somehow just an individual trait that we can train out of people, because capitalism really makes sexism economically rational through something called statistical discrimination. So, and and you can, and once you kind of understand what I mean by that, you can see how this is not an individual problem at all. It is a structural systemic problem of a system which devalues care work or the work that women do largely in the home in order to, to bring up children and sustain the next generation, as well as taking care of, you know, elderly relatives and other sorts of care work that's often done for free in the private sphere. So, When you have an economic system where you have a free labor market and wages are determined by the laws of supply and demand, workers are going to be, you know, paid. They're going to be compensated based on whether or not they're reliable workers, whether or not if you invest in their human capital and things like that, you can rely on them to work for you for longer periods of time. Well, if you have a certain portion of the population, let's say, half of the population, that is statistically more likely to have to withdraw from the labor force, and we're seeing this very clearly during the pandemic, in order to stay home and take care of young children or elderly relatives or do other forms of care work, well, their unreliability as employees is going to be reflected in their wages, right? Employers are going to pay them slightly less than other workers who are seen to be more reliable because for whatever cultural reasons, they are not considered socially responsible for care work. Well, then you obviously have this wage gap that reflects the quote unquote unreliability of a certain class of workers. And then what happens is, is that in heterosexual couples, when there's an exogenous thing like the birth of a child or a global pandemic And somebody has to stay home in order to take care of the children or take care of the elderly parents or the sick relatives or whatever, you're always going to make the rational decision to have the person with the lower wage stay home. And as you can see, that person is always going to be the person who is culturally determined to be most responsible for care work because their wages are determined by their unreliability in the labor force. So this statistical discrimination creates a vicious cycle. There's no way to break this cycle through a market mechanism. You absolutely have to have structural changes to the system, and that means that the state needs to come in and regulate the market. And that's precisely the kind of, you know, social activism and expanding of social safety nets that the economic elites don't want to deal with because it's going to cost them money by reducing their profits. So this is not about individual bad attitudes. It's everything about this statistical discrimination which just allows employers not to discriminate against individual women or people with care work responsibilities, but with the entire class of people who are just statistically more likely to have to leave the labor force and therefore they get paid lower wages. And therefore, when a choice needs to be made, it's always the person with the lower wages that leaves the labor force, which then reinforces the cycle. And it's a vicious cycle. And it's a systemic problem that's not going to be fixed by the market alone.
0: What's also really interesting about that is that there's a, a bunch of research now um, which shows that even in households in heterosexual couples where women earn more than the man, they generally still do more unpaid labor anyway. Um, exactly. And I think this is really interesting because it speaks to this point that, you know, the uh, the kind of white liberal feminist movement has been like, well, women are paid less than men. And that's the problem. So we're going to get lots of kind of, you know, middle class women into senior positions in the corporate world. Um, and that's going to fix all of these problems because, you know, there'll be this recognition of the equality of the value of uh, of male and female labor. And yet this has not really affected a, a societal shift In general, I mean, you know, obviously, we don't have that level of of equality, even at, you know, the senior levels of of most big corporations. But for a lot of feminists, a lot of liberal feminists, that's the kind of end goal, even though we know that those women are probably still doing more unpaid, like, reproductive labor in the household anyway.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, so first of all, we're we're thinking about, you know, really upper class, largely white women in these senior corporate roles. Some of them are just outsourcing that labor, right, Mm. to poor women or women of color. So that's the first thing, right? It's not as if this labor doesn't continue to be gendered. It's just that they can sort of outsource it to poorer women unless there's a pandemic. Yeah. And then when it becomes very difficult to have somebody come into your house and clean your home or look after your children, suddenly even these corporate women are shocked, To realize that even though they earn more money than their partners, that even though they've been, you know, working really hard to build their careers and they may have stature in the labor force and they may have, you know, individual empowerment and self-actualization in their careers, that they're still socially expected to take care of those kids. And they're still socially expected to take care of their parents. You know, this is a much wider um, much more uh, ingrained problem that just having a bunch of more women in the boardroom is not going to solve. So I think that the thing about this sort of, you know, girl boss feminism or whatever you want to call <laughs> it, is that it defangs the movement, right? It focuses on individual autonomy and personal self-actualization mm. rather than, really attacking the root of the problem which is the economic system that devalues care work and once you start focusing on the devaluation of care work you have to really think about what is it about free markets that needs to change in order to make this labor better distributed among you know or socially yeah. supported right among the population so that it does not automatically devolve, Onto a certain percent, you know, a certain part of the population that is just for social and cultural reasons believed to be better at care work.
0: I'm also interested because feminists, you know, even kind of socialist feminists, have different answers to the question as to what we should do with the gap between men and women and heterosexual couples when it comes to unpaid reproductive labour. Some people say, you know, we should be trying to kind of quantify this labor and then um, incorporating it into GDP and ensuring it's properly remunerated, whereas Mm -hmm. others are saying, well, a lot of these tasks should be socialized. I suppose I would lean more towards the latter as I would kind of be worried about, you know, the commodification of a lot of those those things, which would ultimately, you know, facilitate accumulation and end up making profits for someone. Whereas actually, it just feels like a lot of these tasks are just things that we should basically provide for one another to the extent that we possibly can. What do you think about that?
1: Absolutely. So um, exactly one year ago uh, on International Women's Day, I was on a plane for the entire 24 hour period because I crossed the date line from Philadelphia to New Zealand. (laughs) And I was in New Zealand for the New Zealand Festival of the Arts, where I shared a stage with one of my heroes, a feminist economist named Marilyn Waring who wrote a really important book called If Women Counted. And she was talking about the history of GDP and how it was developed by Keynes and, and how it, it you know, really makes invisible women's labor in the home. And we have this conversation, you know, uh, both on stage and then afterwards behind uh, you know at the stage in the green room. And she said that she thought that just putting a dollar amount on women's unpaid labor which I had actually done last year in an op-ed that I did for the New York Times on International Women's Day. And she said that she thought that that actually made it more difficult to advocate for women because in some ways it showed the capitalists how much money they were saving Mm. by using women's unpaid labor and how expensive it would be to societies for us to really recognize the value of this labor. So I have always been of the opinion that we must socialize it. Mm. And again, this is why I tend to look at the example of some of these state socialist countries in Eastern Europe, where they did have not only you know, publicly funded kindergartens and crushes, but also things like public cafeterias, mm. public canteens, public yeah. laundries, all sorts of sort of social, socially funded institutions which removed reproductive work from the private sphere into the public sphere so that society as a whole helped with the raising of the next generation. And I think that's a really important, really important idea. In some ways in the West, we sort of do this for our elderly, right? We have these pension funds. We all agree that it's a good idea for the elderly to be supported, to have access to some kind of health care, even in the United States where we don't have universal health care, we do provide it for the elderly, Mm. right? But we don't do it for children. And I think that, you know, I would a hundred percent agree with you and say that really what we need to do is rather than commodifying this labor um, by putting a dollar value or a pound value on it or a Euro value on it or whatever um, we need to, we need to socialize it. We need to make, um, you know, all of this social reproductive work, part of what it means to live in, you know, modern societies. Mm. We we need to think of this as something that we do together as a society because it is socially valuable.
0: I, you hinted at this there, but it, it is interesting to think of how it is conceivable for us as a society to imagine doing something like socializing, social care, which is the word that we have here for care for... um. The elderly and and the disabled, which is currently outside of the NHS, so um in you know often provided well provided for by local authorities, often by private institutions. So you know socialising that, socialising healthcare, um childcare to an extent. So having you know places where you know nurseries that are provided by states or what we used to have as as Sure Start centres. All these things are kind of you know we can just about conceive of that. The thing I find really interesting, which is um. You you alluded to it when you were talking about the state socialist countries is those things that seem a bit wild things like socialising, cooking, and yeah. uh, and that sort of stuff. And there's a really interesting example that um, someone brought brought to my attention a while ago of the milk bars in Poland, where mm-hmm. there were these kind of community cooking spaces where you could kind of go and, and get a subsidised meal. I'm just wondering, kind of, I'm just really interested in in how those um, you know, unusual perhaps forms of of socialized care existed, particularly in, in those parts of Eastern Europe at the time, and whether or not you have any kind of other cool examples that could help us to imagine how we might socialize this this kind of labor a bit more creatively.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a lot of these things got their start in the early 1920s in the Soviet Union under the direction of a woman named Alexandra kolontai who was the first Bolshevik commissar of social welfare, mm. and she created this wide network of public cafeterias, very much like the milk bars that were written about in Poland. I believe that was a New York Times article. Yeah, it um, might have been yeah. back. Mm. Yeah, I, I actually ended up talking to that journalist for that article. It was a very yeah. interesting thing because there's a lot of nostalgia in Poland for those milk bars. Yeah, certainly. And I was at a conference on Friday at UCL. Uh, it was um, a conference about global infrastructure. And there was a really interesting paper about communal kitchens in Peru. And um, and the fact that there are these long traditions of, of women in neighborhoods having communal kitchens where they pool their resources together and they get groceries and they cook meals mm. for people and they eat communally, right? And we can certainly look at things like the kibbutz movement in Israel, mm. As well, but I think in Eastern Europe the idea was that during the day people would eat together in these cafeterias or canteens while they were at work, and then in the evenings a lot of times women would get pre-prepared meals to take home, or they would get the ingredients of meals to take home with them so they wouldn't have to go shopping, right? Uh, but the other thing, you know, that I think is really interesting a lot of people so a lot of people talk about the the public cafeterias. There were public laundries which meant that you could drop your laundry off in the in the morning. And then at the end of the day, you could go get your laundry. You know, it's sort of like, you know, we have dry cleaners here yeah. in the United States. It would be sort of like a public dry cleaner. Now, people didn't use them for things like, you know, their underwear or whatever, but they did use them for sheets and towels and sort of bulky items that are a pain to wash and are really time consuming. And that was a huge labor saving device for women. The other thing that they had in the 20s, um which i just love this example is mending cooperatives oh wow because it turns out that women had a lot of uh, mending to do and it was a very time consuming thing to mend especially if you're mending for your entire family. And mm. so they would get together, women would get together and sort of, you know, share needle and thread and, and and make it kind of a social event so that you, you know, you had a place where you could drop your mending off or you could go and mend with other people. You know, we don't mend anymore. We just tend yeah. to go out and buy new clothes. <laughs> but, but but it sort of shows you that there were all sorts of creative ways to move things that are done in the the private sphere to the public sphere. I mean, in the early um, 20th century in the United States, we also had something called the kitchenless home movement, Mm. which was, you know, people were building apartments, building private dwellings without kitchens. And the idea was that if you didn't have a kitchen, then people would eat communally together, you would liberate women. So there are all sorts of ways of thinking about, how we structure the way we live, like the architecture of our apartments, mm. of our flats, of our homes. You know, we could change the way we live so that we live more communally and we can share and socialize more of this labor that ends up being done for free in the in the private sphere.
0: I want to talk now a bit about the article that you mentioned that you wrote for the New York Times um, on Oxfam's research showing that globally, women's unpaid labor is worth about $10.9 trillion. So for those of you who are struggling to imagine what that figure looks like that's rounded up 11 with 12 zeros um another way of putting it is that it, you know it, it's a figure that exceeds the combined revenue of the 50 largest companies on the fortune 500 list and we'll put a link to this article in uh, in the description but i'm just wondering presumably this figure would be even higher today after a year of families being shut in their homes with women doing much more of the cooking the cleaning the childcare even as both men and women a lot of the time are but either working from home or still going out to work themselves.
1: Absolutely. I mean, so the one thing about that Oxfam figure, which I think, you know, is really important, is that it's valuing women's labor at minimum wage. Right. Right. So, so it's already an undervaluation of women's mm-hmm. unpaid labor because it's just assuming that all of that labor can only be remunerated at that lowest wage possible. So the number has got to be far higher even before the pandemic. Mm. But I think what the pandemic has really shown, right, is that even though, as you said, in heterosexual couples, if there are a male and female, if they're both at home with the children and they're both working from home, it's still overwhelmingly the women who are doing the homeschooling. It's the women who are doing the care work. And that is a disproportionate burden that, in the United States, has resulted in many women actually leaving the labor force, mm-hmm. and it's unclear whether they'll be able to, to to rejoin the labor force, right? So, so I definitely think that the pandemic, you know, this this reality of women's unpaid labor has been discussed, you know, for decades, really, starting with like the wages for housework uh, movement and Sylvia yeah. Federici and some of those people, you know, earlier in the seventies. But I think what we're really seeing is that women are kind of capitalism's backup plan, right? (laughs) Like when things start to go poorly in our societies, it's women who step up and really hold things together. And we do not appreciate the, the incredible and important role that women play in our societies you know, through all of this unpaid labor that they do, whether it's for our children or our parents or friends or comrades or colleagues or whatever, it's a really, really important contribution to the world that we live in. And we basically just sort of ignore it most of the time.
0: So we talked a little bit about women's unpaid labor, and there are so many different elements and aspects to patriarchy that we could uh, we could discuss today. But I want to speak about a couple more. So, you know, one of the biggest challenges that women around the world face at the moment is, is violence and abuse. Uh, and this, again, mm-hmm. is something that has, you know, gone through the roof during the pandemic with domestic abuse cases just skyrocketing. But that comes on the back of a long standing trend of this, effectively, you know, this massive social phenomenon being just swept under the carpet. So in mm-hmm. the UK, for example, we've seen rape convictions shrink to such low levels that campaigners have claimed that rape has effectively been legalised. There's also, you know, a huge amount of modern slavery and 70% of modern slaves are women. And there's a big kind of, you know, set of questions here around where this violence against women comes from. Whenever we kind of talk about any of this stuff in the media, you'll have a man on there saying, you know, this is just how men are. And then another one saying, you know, it's because of particular religions or particular cultures. Can you talk Mm -hmm. to us about the kind of limitations of explaining violence against women in that way and talk to us about how it's actually an outgrowth of capitalist patriarchy?
1: I would say that capitalism, as an economic system, because of the you know exploitation of labor and the alienation that many people feel from themselves, um, really dehumanizes people. Mm. And we don't talk enough about this dehumanization and the and the loneliness and the isolation that many people are feeling. You know, I know that there was this big loneliness report that was done in the UK. Yeah. In the United States, we are facing an epidemic of loneliness. Um, and people are feeling really alienated, again, not only from their labor, But these days, also from their emotions, their attentions and their affections, as capitalism starts to really exploit us on an affective level as well. And so this dehumanization, I think, you know, makes everyone really unhappy. And there are just different ways that different people react to this sort of feeling of being alienated and and overlooked by society. So so that's the first part is I really think we need to really think about the structural ways that capitalism and the free market economy, and particularly in its neoliberal instantiation affects our mental health. And here I really rely heavily on the work of somebody like Mark Fisher and capitalist realism, right? Which I think is so instructive. Mm -hmm. That book really lays out the epidemic of the mental health crisis that we were facing before the pandemic, Mm -hmm. right? I think the pandemic has actually made this even worse. But the second thing that I will say is, again, coming back to this statistical discrimination, which is that so many women in our societies in the West are economically dependent on their partners. Mm. And economic dependence creates a particular kind of vulnerability. So in the United States, I'll give you an example. There was a Kaiser Family Foundation study that found that about 25% of women under the age of 65, because after 65 in the US, you have Medicare, 25% of women under the age of 65 get their health insurance through their spouse, hmm. which means like, unlike in the UK, if you are in an abusive relationship, you can leave that relationship and still have access to medical care. That's not true in the United States. You will lose your health insurance if you divorce your abusive husband. And I think that this dependency that capitalism reproduces because of things like statistical discrimination and because of these very anemic social safety nets that we have, which allow women and children to sink into poverty once they get divorced or if they have some sort of family issues. Um, I think that that also, um, the power imbalance that capitalism creates between men and women is also a factor that not only allows men to, um, you know, sort of creates this abuse uh, scenario, but then makes it very, very difficult for women to leave abusive, unhealthy or otherwise unhappy relationships. You know, and so, again, we can look at some of the state socialist countries in Eastern Europe for interesting examples of where when women have their own economic independence – when they can, you know, they have a flat and they have a job and they have a a huge social safety net that will support them and their children in the absence of a partner, if that partner abuses you in any way, you just leave. Mm. And when men are faced (laughs) with the real possibility of the women that they love or, you know, the women that they consider their quote unquote property walking out of their lives, it turns out that men actually will behave a little bit better. And I do think that that's something that we should really talk about, again, when we talk about the sort of structural factors that exacerbate violence and abuse, and not just focus on individual men or individual cultures.
0: So another structural barrier I wanted to talk about for women to achieve independence that's faced by many women around the world, um, and which you've written about, is the kind of glorification of motherhood without the uh, provision of any of the resources that are required to really support children. So uh, in many countries around the world, there is either no paid parental leave or a very, very limited form of paid parental leave. I know this is an issue in the US. And even where it exists, there's often stigma associated with taking paternity leave as opposed to maternity leave. Um, And you wrote this great article about how the, you know, you have stopped sending off your, your mother flowers on Mother's Day and instead you've been sending her stuff on International Women's Day, which I, after reading that, realized I've just bought my mum some flowers this year for the weekend and I should have bought her some for international women's day. Cause she would have loved that, but yeah. next year, I'll get it. <laughs> but, but, um, yeah. My mom wanted... was not
1: pleased initially by this move, by the way.
0: <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. No. I, yeah. You, you said that in the piece. I kind of think my mom would love it to be honest. You would be able to like show off to her friends about how like cool and, you know, alternative her, her children were, <laughs> which she already does yeah. anyway. But <laughs> So yeah, I guess kind of, uh, you know aside from this this challenge of like agitating for um for parental leave i'm wondering what this speaks to in terms of how we should be thinking about trying to reconceptualize the idea of of parenting and of the family and um you know and doing that as part of a broader discourse around mutual care and intergenerational solidarity you know without necessarily going all the way to you know we need to abolish the family Maybe right. you know, how how might you do that? But more of a kind of question as to, you know, again situating all these um, these things in a social context.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I'm working on a, a project right now that uh, really goes back all the way to Plato and looks at mm. utopian visions for what families need to look like in more equitable societies. So a lot of people don't realize that in the Republic. Plato actually sort of uh, decided that his guardians would live in a kind of communal family, right? Mm. So uh, it's pretty shocking, right? And, and if you go back and you read Thomas More's Utopia or Tommaso Campanella's City of the Sun, there are all these really interesting experiments whereby, you know, collectively owning property also has these really interesting analogs within the family. Now, again, as you said, without the extreme abolition of the family, what would that actually look like? Well. As an ethnographer, I'm always really interested in kin relations, in kinship relations. Mm. And you know, there's a lot of really interesting research out there about allo-parenting, right? So having other adults in the lives of your children. Mm. And when we go back and we read somebody like Alexandra Kolontai who was writing, you know, in the 20s in the Soviet Union about what she called winged arrows versus wingless arrows. So she was thinking about the She does a Marxist reading of love and how love changes depending on the economic system under which you're living. And one of the things that she says, which I am 100% convinced is true, is that when you have a more equitable society, your romantic relationship has less pressure on it because you have a much wider network of, of colleagues and friends Who support you emotionally, Mm. right? And so one of the ways that I think, you know, again, this is sort of a baby step, right? Is that we should spend or we should share more time nurturing our relationships with friends, with with our non-kin colleagues and comrades and fellow, you know, students and Community members, and and you know if you if you go to a a religious institution, people that you are connected with in a non kin way, and what that starts to do, and we see this very clearly, is that when you have these wonderful sort of adult relationships that are sort of independent of kin, those adults become sort of allo parents to your children. They become kind of allo children to your parents. I mean, I'm sure if you have like a really close friend from childhood, a lot of times your parent sort of feels like they kind of helped mother or father that person as well. And I have, you know, close friends from, let's say university or whatever. And my daughter, like, a, a, you know, a, I have a, a close, uh, my first year roommate, her name was Alma. And when my daughter was growing up, she called her Thea Alma, like Auntie Alma, right? Because she was sort of like a a, a a parental figure in her life who wasn't akin relation but with somebody who she thought of as a as an adult that she looked up to and who was around and those kinds of relationships are the relationships that capitalism is eroding in our kind of late capitalist societies these allo-parenting non-kin connections and i feel like one of the things that we can really do is push back against the commodification of our attention and our affection and our emotions and try as much as possible to share our time and nurture relationships outside of the you know mediation of apps like tinder or bumble or you know <laughs> facebook or whatever you know these 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 online platforms that are trying to mediate human relationships like go to the park drink a bottle of wine with your friends <laughs> <laughs> right, and and just yeah. do it off of any technology, and just you know outside of the 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 cost of the wine, just sit outside and enjoy nature. And I think that, that that's the kind of thing that we're losing, and that we need to reinvigorate. Remember, I was talking about rehumanization. I think mm. we also need this rerelationshipization, right? Where where we yeah. look at somebody like Colantai, and she says. A society that is more equitable is going to be a society where people have many friends and they feel supported by wide networks of people. And I think that that's something really to aspire to. We've gotten basically
0: the end of the program, but obviously this is the question that everyone will have been waiting for you to answer, which you kind of answered already, but I'm going to just put it to you straight straight off the bat. Why will women have better sex under socialism?
1: (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, you know, and of course, this is a this is a sweeping generalization. We like it sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I'm very sensitive to the fact that you know the book has now been translated and it's 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 available in like 13 different foreign editions, and and different people have very different critical takes on this sweeping statement, which <laughs> was the title that my publisher chose for me and not my own. But but the general idea of the book, uh, which I will stand behind, is that when women have more economic independence from their relationships, when our romantic relationships are not transactional, right? When they are Mm -hmm. based on mutual love and affection and attraction, right? Mm -hmm. We're not choosing partners on the basis of whether or not those partners can pay the rent, but we're choosing those partners on the basis of whether or not We like them, whether or not they treat us well, whether or not they're kind to us, whether or not, you know, they care about our needs in the bedroom and otherwise. And so I think that it's a pretty, it's really not rocket science, right? In a world Mm -hmm. in which we are choosing our partners on the basis of love and mutual affection rather than on the basis of some sort of financial consideration, our intimate lives are just going to be better.
0: I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> thank you so much, Kristen, for joining me on this brilliant uh, episode of A World to Win. It's been so fantastic to chat to you.
1: It's been really fun. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation. I always love, you know, getting out there on International Women's Day and talking about these issues.